Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this wonderful Sydney Ideas event. Um, Meredith Hall, who's our key organiser, just asked me to apologise to you for the squish, but I'm not going to, because I think the squish makes it feel like we're really at a Eurovision event. (laughs) We're all in this together. So welcome to our Sydney Ideas event, Eurovision and the European Project, a political guide to the song contest, or as I like to call it, the first annual University of Sydney, a long way from Europe song contest. All right, tonight I'd like to begin the proceedings with an acknowledgement of country. For those of you, some of you may know and some of you may not, but the University of Sydney sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. So I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal elders past and present. Um, all the work that we do at the University of Sydney and beyond, I think, is shaped by indigenous knowledges and it's important to to recognise that. I also wanted to tonight just to acknowledge the uh, rich cultural life of indigenous peoples in Australia, so that cultural life past and present and I think in terms of Eurovision it's very much, um, uh, we're very much aware of it with this um, particular, with 2017 contest with the Australian uh, contestant being um, Isaiah Firebrace. an indigenous uh, young person and singer. When I had, um, I had lunch this afternoon with a couple of friends who are from South Africa and they asked me what I was doing tonight, I was very excited to tell them that I was chairing, or as I like to say, hosting um, tonight's event. And they had arrived in Australia in the 1990s from South Africa and one of them actually works for SBS, so he had quite a knowledge of the Eurovision. And he said, when, when I first came here, I just couldn't understand what the interest was, what the weird interest was that Australians had in Eurovision. Um, and he said that he, he thought to begin with that we watched it just to laugh at it, like we were sort of, you know, outsiders going, ha, ha, ha. And, of course, that's not um, how uh, we engage with Eurovision. And yes, yes, there's a certain knowingness um, when, we're, when we're watching Eurovision, when you know, that particular performance comes on and as viewers we wait for the inevitable key change, for the wind machine to be turned on, for the big, for the big you know, finale um, that uh, recognises, that, that lets us know, um, you know this is what it's all about. But of course, our, our engagement is nuanced and, and complex, and part of the reason we're here tonight is that we do understand and we're interested in the political machinations um, of Eurovision. We love that as well. Um, and so tonight we will be exploring Eurovision as a cultural event, but also Eurovision as a political event. So just to let you know how the evening will play out, um, We've got two contestants, I mean, we've got two speakers uh, tonight. Um, Our first speaker is Julia Zemiro, and she'll speak, uh, she'll speak to begin with because she's the first speaker. And then she'll be followed by um, uh, Annika, 
Uh, and then after those presentations, our speakers will be um, taking residents up here on the podium and we'll have a question and answer session. So there'll be plenty of time for interaction. All right. Also wanted to let you know we're very happy and very excited for anyone to tweet um, from, from tonight's very exciting con uh, seminar. Um, so you'll see the handles uh, that you can use if you want to come up here on the, the PowerPoint. And also we're just using hashtag Eurovision if you wanted to include that. All right, so I'd like to introduce our first speaker. And as I said, it's Julia Zamiro. Uh, now, Julia is an alumnus of the University of Sydney. She came here to do a Bachelor of Arts, almost finished it, and then got excited by the bright lights of Melbourne and went south to, um, to finish it down at the Victorian College of the Arts. You might also know that uh, Julia in 2007 won Australian's brainiest TV star, which I think is pretty obvious. Uh, Julia is a singer, writer, and actor. But she's, I mean, for me, she's most, most well known as the host of the evergreen and the ever wonderful rock quiz. From, and this is part of her expertise and why she's here tonight, is that from 2009 to 2016, along with Sam Pang, she hosted SBS's uh, Eurovision broadcast. And immediately after she leaves here tonight, she's off on tour. Um, 30 live shows with Rock Quiz. So we're very excited to have Julia um, as our first speaker tonight talking about Eurovision and politics. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Bonsoir, mes amis. Bienvenue ici ce soir à l'Université de Sydney pour cette soirée d'Eurovision et sa politique en paillettes. Thank you for the French. Good. No, I was born with it. Didn't even learn it. Good evening, friends. Welcome to the University of Sydney for this evening's talk on Eurovision and her politics in sequence. Uh, Annika, thank you for the invitation, uh, and you'll be diving into the politics. Annika has asked me to talk about how I came to Eurovision and how it's developed. Well, I suppose it first came to me, in a way, in 1967 when my Australian mother was pregnant with me in France. I heard Sandy Shaw's puppet on a string in utero. The first concert I ever went to was ABBA here in Sydney at the SCG in March in 1977. A little round of applause from one man here, good. <laughs> I adored them. I had their records. I kept buying them all my life. But actually, I can't say that I knew about their Eurovision connection until much, much later. My next brush with Euro was as a teen when SBS Channel 028 started broadcasting in Australia in 1980. SBS television was a revelation. Back then, to have films and news from all over the world coming to your lounge room for free was magnificent. We felt multicultural, and that was being reflected now in our televisions. Bill Shorten obviously missed the memo. <laughs> and SBS had the rights to Eurovision, so we would watch it every year. But my first full immersion in a Eurovision universe was in 2004. I toured Australia with Eurobeat the Musical. Oh, bless you in your cotton socks, all of you. 
that saw that particular concert. This was a parody of the Eurovision Song Contest. The show was the brainchild of Craig Christie and Andrew Patterson, who wrote 10 quite perfect songs in the style of Eurovision. It was set in Bosnia-Herzegovina, the premise being that it was after the war and they had to stage this huge extravaganza with the very little that they had. I was cast as Bronya, the host, an older but wiser, seen-it-all, done-it-all former cabaret artist and current affairs presenter, if you don't mind, <laughs> along with Sergei, my younger host, an innocent, not-quite-with-it younger man who's just trying to keep up. A little bit Lisa Wilkinson and Carl Stefanovic. <laughs> I did get to sing the interval act song, I'm Sarajevo, Taste Me. Happy times. <laughs> Happy times. As I said, these 10 songs were quite wonderful. An all-Russian boy band, all in white, called the KG Boys. <laughs> An Italian rap incorporating opera, the title of which was Don't Say, Ti Amo. And a completely out of tune entry from the United Kingdom <laughs> that went, I love to love, to love, to love, to love, 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 with the breath uh, in there as well. <laughs> Extraordinary, beautifully, beautifully played. So terrible, it was brilliant. Craig and Andrew knew their Eurovision. Their parody was based on Cry Baby, a song that the UK, a real UK performing act called Gemini, had uh, performed in 2003 at Eurovision. Gemma and Chris, the two people in Gemini, uh, Gemma, the girl, said she couldn't hear her backing track through her earpiece, which is totally possible. It's, it's a crazy gig. But the result was her singing, that first verse was completely off key. To be fair, Chris wasn't a great singer either. But the UK received nul point, the first ever, and it was mortifying. Now, I did a lot of research as the host of this show because we were writing the intros and trying to find fun things to, you know, say about the different acts. And the more research I did, the more interesting it became. What were the rules? When did all the countries start singing in English? Who could enter? What was the EBU? What do you mean Celine Dion, Cliff Richard, Lulu and Olivia Newton-John had performed at Eurovision? And why? <laughs> and yes, there were terrible songs. Cheesy, sexist, boring songs that feel they go on for 10 minutes even though the rule is they have to be three minutes. But sometimes there are wonderful songs. Portugal's entry this year is one of those, for example. Salvador Sobral with Amar Pelos Dios. I don't know how it will fare, but it is not your typical Eurovision song, and yet it is there for your consideration. Our parody musical Eurobeat in an early version included a Greek entry, Esu or Satana, sung in Greek by Helen Yodas Patterson. She blew the audience away and with her incredible voice every night. No one understood the Greek, didn't care. Her performance, the music, the beat made its mark. Even within our parody, there was a song that made you sit up, listen and think, actually, I really like this. The cast was made up of musical theatre performers at the top of their game who understood comedy. They were triple and quadruple threats, all of them. So, having been the host of a parody of Eurovision, I never thought that one day I would get the gig and actually go and work on one. 
In 2005, I auditioned uh, for Rockwiz and got the gig. Phew. At 38, I was thinking I might give away this performing lark if a decent long-term gig doesn't come my way by the time I'm 40. But Rockwiz opened a whole bunch of doors for me. Just checking my stopwatch. Um, including being a personality on SBS. So, for a couple of years, SBS got me to do little intros and outros for the TV show that we were showing of Eurovision. We would hire a little cocktail bar in Oxford Street, Taylor Square, I think it was Gilligan's, and in the cold, harsh light of day, we would make the bar look like night times, and I would film little interstitials in French and in English. SBS were trying to brand the show for them. Up until then, the Eurovision program we saw in Australia was the UK version with commentary from Terry Wogan. Yes, rest in peace, beautiful Terry. He was acerbic, smart and loving. He would always flip expectations of what standard commentary should be and played with the form. But in 2008, Terry stepped down after 35 years claiming he was tired of block voting. <laughs> he received a lot of flack about it. But I like this quote. Many of you may have heard my commentary and don't think I take the competition seriously enough. And you're right, I don't. <laughs> but I am a friend of this contest, possibly its oldest friend. How do friends behave to each other? They tell each other the truth. They don't indulge in idle flattery. When he was asked about his accusations of block voting, he said, I don't want to start an argument, but said it was transparently obvious. The politics played a part. With Terry gone, Denise Erickson, the head of production and development at SBS at the time, thought, why not send a team from SBS to do the duties? She thought of me. How would you feel about going to Moscow to do Eurovision? Well, I was pretty excited just to go to Moscow, frankly. <laughs> but this was quite the challenge. Denise brought Sam Pang into the mix. We had never worked together before, but we knew each other because we'd done the hard yards, the real ones, waiting on tables in a restaurant called the Spaghetti Tree in Melbourne. Yeah, we knew hard work. <laughs> now, Sam knew nothing about Eurovision. I knew a lot more, and it turns out that became our strength as a commentary team. Sam could represent the punter who'd never seen the show before and who might want to tune in for the first time, and I could build on the assumed knowledge I knew many, many of our viewers already had. We also made each other laugh a lot, so that helped. But we had big Terry Wogan shoes to fill. Sam came up with a great idea. We got some T-shirts made. Mine said, Terry's not doing it this year. And Sam said, yeah, we miss him too. <laughs> we popped them on halfway through the show. We didn't even tell our producer we were going to do it. And we made no reference to them whatsoever. It was just a gesture to the many fans out there who might be angry we were taking over, that we knew we had a legacy that we had to up uphold. So after our 30-hour flight, our little team of just four landed in Moscow. Paul Clark, our producer. Andy Top, our cameraman, and Soundy combined, Sam and I. Compare that to last year when we were a team of 20. We had accreditation, but every day was a logistical nightmare just accessing the venue. I had a Russian phrase book, that helped. <laughs> I don't understand. Good. We employed a translator, but even she was tearing her hair out. A new official entry was invented every day and we would lug our seven boxes of cameras, sound and lighting equipment around the stadium. We walked and walked and walked, stumbling onto the smoking area for the crew. This would break 17 safety laws in Australia, but Smoko in Moscow is 24 hours a day. 
made me a bit nostalgic. <laughs> and then finally, there it was, the stage. It was huge. Teams of people sweeping, polishing, a backdrop complete with 40% of the world's LED screens. <laughs> a huge lighting rig, countless cameras, and five, count them, five suspended swimming pools full of water hanging from the ceiling for the interval act Fuerza Bruta from Buenos Aires. Hundreds of people are fixing smoke machines, checking wind machines, lugging huge matryoshka dolls. It is practically an Olympics opening ceremony and the cost was 30 million euros. We hit the media room where hundreds of journalists slash Euro geeks slash accredited fans are already on computers corresponding furiously. Social media and smartphones back in 2009 weren't really in play yet. It felt like an old fashioned newsroom, the Russian equivalent of a huge tin of international roast instant coffee powder on a trestle table and styrofoam cups in the corner. A big screen relayed the dress rehearsal dramas happening as we typed and a CD of all that year's Euro songs played and on an endless loop, endlessly, all the time. <laughs> the first year we were newbies. No one understood why we were there. Why was Australia even interested? But they didn't really care, to be honest, as long as we kept out of the way we did stand out, though, backstage because we brought cameras. We were actually filming our interviews because we were making a TV show. Most of the people interviewing there were just doing audio or working on radio. And it showed that it wasn't luxurious backstage. Demountables for everyone. Filming those interviews, too, meant we could break down language barriers with mime, which made everyone laugh and relax, or we could bring in a translator if we had to. I could speak French, so that helped sometimes, and, of course, some of them had English. If all else failed, we'd just get them to sing their song. <laughs> One of my favourite interviews was with the Russian grannies, the Buranyovsky Babushki. <laughs> Grania, Galina, Natalia, Valentina, Olga and Yekaterina. There were eight of them, but only six were allowed to perform, because six is the rule per, per act. Has start off their song in sort of uh, traditional singing and then go off in a kind of a party for everybody disco beat. But when I interviewed them and there were language problems, their translator says to me, but you know, you know, they sing Beatles songs in their own language, in um, Urdut, I think it's called. And they did. And that was beautiful. To hear them sing how they normally sing and singing this beautiful, beautiful Beatles song yesterday, I thought, oh, it's a shame you're not doing that up there tonight. At that first semi, we had a port, two Portaloo-sized commentary box up in the gods and it felt like a sporting event. Sam would quote stats and odds because, as you know, Eurovision has a long history and if you get a date wrong, a name wrong, a result wrong, oh, you'll hear about it. <laughs> our cameraman Andy was sandwiched between us and our producer Paul and we got through the game. Watching this incredible show and looking, watching out for the winner. The winner, of course, was uh, uh, Alexander Reback from Norway, who won with the hugest uh, margin ever at that point, over 300 votes. The, it, the result was clear so early that Sam and I had run out of things to say, a mistake we never made again, and made sure we had plenty of things to talk about uh, the next time round. On the night before we did the final call, we got back to our rooms and I just thought, I've got nothing left to say. We've, we've already done two semis. I feel like I've done all my good material. That's a lesson. Next time I'll save some of the better stuff. And up came an email, all the way from Australia, there in Moscow, from Casey Benetto. 
He's a composer and a writer. He's also a huge fan of music at Eurovision and holds an extraordinary party every year at Trades Hall in Melbourne. As I was sitting there thinking, I've got nothing new to add, I opened this email and he's written a four-line precy analysing the music of each song in the final <laughs> and its chances of winning. It was that extra little delicious kick I needed to see the songs in a different way and tweak each intro. It was a gift. But then again, that's Casey. Meanwhile, the mayor of Moscow banned a gay pride march calling it satanic. Strangely, anti-gay marches were allowed. The Dutch entry, the toppers, said that if they got to the final, they would boycott it if the march was met with violence by the police. And we later discovered it was. Sadly, the toppers didn't make it through to the final, but it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if they'd actually made that stand. I could go on and on. There's so much to talk about, and we're on limited time. But by the time we got to the final, it had been the longest night in Christendom, of course, because the show started at midnight, Russian time, to meet up with, uh, you know, fancy, proper Europe, e European Eastern time. London doesn't have to get up any later. So uh, we'd finish at 3am in the morning and then have to be up again at 7 to do uh, radio back in Sydney. There have been so many Eurovisions. My favourite was the show in Malmö, when Sweden, the mecca of Eurovision, won. It was a fully green event, sedately managed in a simple stadium, and it cost 12 million euros. If they can go small, why not do it more often? I also got to do two roadshows with Eurovision, which taught me how to learn scripts as I was uh, driving in the back of a van, shooting on location in front of people I didn't know. And indeed, uh, the home delivery uh, producers saw that in me and offered me the home delivery show. So this show brought me more than I would ever, could even have asked for. We'll talk more in the questions about how it's changing. Social media is changing Eurovision. Openly filmed rehearsals, which I think are nuts, are changing the show. The expansion of including Australia is changing it. I got to see close up what it's like for a musician to do that show, and it's a very big job, and it's very tiring. I think also that with Justin Timberlake singing in the concert last year as the interval act, who I thought was Justin Bieber for the first week. Um, <laughs> Justin Bieber's playing, Justin Bieber. Oh, Timberlake, wrong. Um, was an interesting inclusion. China turned up to watch. Do politics play a part? Of course they do. But backstage on the ground, hanging around in corridors, waiting for artists to interview, eating too many lollies and drinking coffees. I just saw performers waiting their turn, chatting, laughing, watching each other on screens in the rehearsals, applauding each other, devastated when they didn't make it to the final, and some not fussed that they didn't make it to the final. <laughs> They're just people who, when this shindig is over, would be going home. For some performers, it can step up to the next level in terms of their career, even if they don't win. But the only thing I am sure of is they have to sing a song that they like. Finally, in my wildest dreams, I would love to see a wild card year where every country has to sing in their own language. Not forever, all right, English is king, mama. <laughs> but just for one year, wouldn't it be great to hear every country's unique language and sound with an orchestra and a conductor? Yes. Everyone sings in English because they think that's how they're going to win, but I can guarantee you that if everyone sang in their own language, 
the winner would definitely not be the one in English. Thank you for sharing Wildest Dreams. Uh, I'd now like to introduce our second speaker. It's um, Associate Professor Annika Gaulia, who is from the Department of Government and International Relations here at the University of Sydney. Uh, Annika is a political scientist and her research focus is comparative analysis of political institutions in modern representative democracies, or as I like to say, party, party, party. Um, <laughs> She is especially interested in um, thinking about political parties and how they adapt to change, so Europe today. Uh, Annika is also uh, a, a, an ocean swimmer. She's an amazing chef and she's a wine expert. She holds a WSCT Level 3 certificate. <laughs> and not to be outdone by uh, Julia, uh, Annika has a very impressive uh, Media profile, she was on that great show, MasterChef. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, radio's more her thing now. She's a regular guest on Election Nerds. Um, so let's all welcome our second speaker, uh, Annika. Thank you. Thanks very much, and uh, thank you, Julia, for uh, sharing some amazing insights. As Kat mentioned, I'm a political scientist, and it's actually really, really hard for me to draw any link between what I usually research and Eurovision, so I'm not even going to try to do that. But what I'm going to tell you about is how both my career as a political scientist and my interest in Eurovision collided in 2007 when I went to Helsinki. And I was going to Helsinki for a political science conference. And some of you in the room will understand how excited I was to be going to my very first European Consortium of Political Research joint sessions of the workshops. Uh, <laughs> most of you won't. But um, I was at Heathrow Airport, sitting, I think, on uh, gate 24. And I saw all of these people sitting around in Ugg boots and wearing sunglasses. And I thought, oh, God, they're people from Essex hanging around waiting for a plane. Um, but when I got on the flight, the captain came on over the loudspeaker and he said, it gives me really great pleasure to welcome aboard on this flight to the United Kingdom's entry for the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> Scooch. And for those of you... <laughs> For those of you who remember that entry, they were flying the flag for British mediocrity at Eurovision that year. <laughs> And, and the captain concluded the fight with, well, let's hope they can do better than Nalpois. <laughs> so there you go. So tonight what I'm doing is talking about Eurovision from a politics perspective. Um, and what I want to do is sort of give you some tools. So when you go uh, to bed for those brief few hours tonight and wake up at 5am tomorrow morning, uh, you know what to look for in the contest. And I'll start with... Uh, this year's theme, Celebrate Diversity. Now, it's one of uh, many slogans that's used by the local broadcasting association uh, and the local uh, city host that hosts Eurovision to create a sense of community in the contest. It's uh, been preceded by Share the Moment, which was uh, Norway in 2010, We Are One, Sweden 2013, 
and Building Bridges Austria uh, 2015. And all of these slogans try to encapsulate the message which was um, so eloquently put by Martin Erstdahl, the executive producer of the 2016 contest, that the idea of unity in Eurovision is important today as it was in the 1950s when the contest started. The contest is never about borders, politics or ideologies. It is about reaching across all the boundaries that separate us as human beings from one another. So how does Eurovision do this? Well, it obviously does it through the sequins, it does it through the glitter, the pyrotechnics, the wind machines, everything that's formed a drinking game uh, <laughs> as, a, as a nod to the shared values and democracy. But the same things that unite us as humans are also the things that divide us and provide very contentious points of difference. And so the Eurovision stage basically serves as a platform for all of these things. It's a platform for unity, it's a platform for celebration, but it's also a platform for issues of identity, of culture, of gender, of sexuality, of memory and of protest and nationalism and supremacy. So tonight I'm going to be focusing basically on three key themes. Geopolitics, identity and participation. Now, I'm assuming that there is uh, quite a significant level of knowledge in this room, uh, so I'm only going to provide a very, very cursory background to, to Eurovision. It started back in 1956. It was an idea that was essentially nicked from the Italians uh, when Eurovision adopted the very popular format of the San Remo Song Festival. But it was established by the European Broadcasting Union, which was an arm of the Council of Europe, to bring together Europe as a cultural project in the aftermath of the Second World War and to foster a shared sense of European values, culture and identity. Now, in some ways, Eurovision has changed very little uh, from the first broadcast. The concept remains uh, essentially the same. So European nations compete against each other to, to write and perform the best original song each year. And Eurovision is staged as a competition between nations. Um, United Kingdom's score hasn't changed very much either in that time. Ooh, yes, there's more of that coming. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so the, Euro the winner of Eurovision is selected by a combination of a popular vote uh, and a jury vote as well. And it's a process I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. And as Julie mentioned, it's, it's big business. So Sweden was relatively conservative with its hosting of the, the, the contest. Azerbaijan was not. Um, it's grown to over 40 participating nations. Um, and as we know, not all of them are in Europe. So if Eurovision is a monument to drivel, as the French called it in the 1980s. It's certainly a bloody significant pile of drivel indeed. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the politics. Now, uh, Julia mentioned the rules, and I've uh, taken the liberty of actually extracting some of those rules, which are very, very clear that Eurovision is not a political event. So according to these official rules, no lyrics, speeches, gestures or political uh, or similar nature should be permitted during the, European, uh, the Eurovision Song Contest. No messages promoting any organisation, institution, political cause or other company brand. Products or services shall be allowed in the shows and within any official ESC premises. A breach of this rule may result in disqualification. So let me just recap what happened last year. <laughs> Uh, the winning song, called 1944 by Ada Shamala from the Ukraine, was a very, very powerful song, a very powerful performance, and it was a biographical de depiction of the artist's grandmother. 
Um, it included a lot of historical references to the persecution and deportation of Crimean uh, Tatars under Stalin, and it was historical in its nature, but it was regarded by many to be uh, a sort of contemporary commentary on Russia's activities in the region. Now, Russia requested to the EBU to have the song banned, uh, but that request was unsuccessful. It was performed, it subsequently won, and this is why we are in Kiev this year. Now, as Kiev prepares to host this year's contest, the diplomatic standoff between Russia and the uh, Ukraine continues. So this was Russia's selected contestant, Yulia Samolyova. Uh, she was banned from entering the Ukraine after it was deemed by the authorities in the Ukraine that she illegally performed in Crimea, which is a territory that was annexed uh, by Russia in 2014. Now, the EBU offered a solution to this whereby Samoyova would be allowed to perform by satellite link, and that's the very first time that that's been offered in 63 years, um, but this was refused. So essentially we have a significant political stalemate with all parties not being able to reach a compromise. Uh, the Ukrainian position is that the artist broke Ukrainian law and the travel ban is sound. The EBU's position uh, is this compromise solution that I mentioned earlier, and Russia's position is that they're certainly not going to accept that. Now, I really wouldn't want to be in Jan Olesson's position this year, because uh, this is a very, very significant and very overt diplomatic dispute. And I've used it as an example here um, to highlight more than anything that these political events play out not only on the Eurovision stage, but in the broader context in which Eurovision is viewed and watched. So we can use the example of 1944 to say, okay, there's a very fine line of, as to what's a political song, what's not a political song. Um, and there are also very important normative questions about whether we ought to be drawing that line, uh, and not, not only where it should be drawn, um, but also that the EBU can do very, very little about the context of the contest. So how we interpret the songs depends on what's happening around us, um, and that's something that's very, very difficult to control. Now, Julia mentioned voting blocks. So this is one very, very overt example of politics playing out. But uh, voting blocks have existed throughout the history of the contest. Um, Countries can't vote for their own acts. So that, in a way, takes care of this issue of trying to mobilise people from very populous states to vote for their own, their own song um, and winning by that account. While there is consensus that voting blocks exist, there's not that much consensus as to what they are. <laughs> um, this is an extremely clear picture of the voting blocks that existed in the 2014 Eurovision Song Contest, but basically people have argued that uh, you have the Scandinavian countries that tend to vote for each other, the Balkan countries, the former USSR countries, and then sort of like this miscellaneous Western European bloc and a bit of a love in between the UK and Malta. Um, <laughs> you've also got your independent countries, uh, Monaco, France, Israel, Switzerland, Portugal, and Germany. Uh, and then the UK has consistently be called a country with no friends. <laughs> yeah. So the analysis of voting patterns is actually really, really huge in Eurovision research because there are a lot of sophologists out there that don't have anything better to do <laughs> on, a, on a Saturday night. But what they do show is if block voting exists, it's existed for quite some time. Okay, so it was evident when the contest was first established. Where it's become problematic or it's become an issue is since the expansion of the contest to include southern and eastern European countries. And 
Terry Wogan has actually had a lot to do with expressing his discomfort um, and disappointment as to how voting blocks have operated in the contest. And that led, uh, in big part on his insistence, to the reintroduction of the jury vote component in 2009, which was designed specifically to mitigate those effects of block voting. And in Yon Alassane's words, to even it out. Um, and it was also an attempt, some argue, by Western broadcasters to try to regain their dominance in the contest. Because, I mean, there's always um, some criticism or some suggestion that of voting blocks that they're not political. They're actually more on the basis of shared cultural appreciations for songs uh, than they are about overt political voting. Now, it would be remiss of me as a political scientist not to talk about the electoral system of Eurovision. Uh, I'm sure this is something that you don't want to hear about, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it's called the border count, and Eurovision stands in great company with uh, Iceland, Slovenia, and Nauru in using this electoral system method, as does the NBA in selecting its most valuable player of the year <laughs> award. So basically, uh, in each country, the voters tallied, ranked, and then awarded a numerical value, 12, 10, 8, and then um, from 8 down to, to 1 point. And the same ranking process and numerical allocation happens with a jury vote as well. So Eurovision is actually a preferential method of voting. And that really makes me excited because it's just like what we have in Australia. Uh, not border, but preferential voting, that is. Um, and what it does is actually produce a really, really good compromise candidate. So what will happen in Eurovision is you'll tend to have a song that is acceptable to the most number of people emerge as the overall winner. Now, it might not necessarily be the song with the highest vote, as last year's contest demonstrated as well, uh, with Russia getting the, uh, the highest number of popular votes and making a point of that, much like Donald Trump did as well uh, in his victory. But it can also be open to strategic voting and manipulation. Now, Eurovision, uh, the producers contend that they have the software that allows, us, allows them to deal with instances where they detect that people are uh, voting en masse, stacking the Eurovision vote. Uh, and this has happened uh, before in the history of the contest. In 2013, Azerbaijan was alleged to have participated this, enrolling the help of Polish students to vote for its contestants. The EBU did an investigation, found that there was suspicious activity, but didn't link it to any particular country. Now, it's difficult to pull that sort of manipulation off on a national scale. Where it does come into play, though, is potentially in the results of the jury vote. Uh, and in 2015, the votes of both Macedonia and Montenegro were disregarded after suspicious behaviour was detected. And we also saw evidence of manipulation again in 2013 when the Azerbaijani national jury was placed under investigation from the country's president for failing to award any points to Russia. <laughs> uh, the Russian foreign minister, and I quote, said immediately after the contest, Russia became outraged over how Eurovision votes for its entrant disappeared during a voting process in Azerbaijan. When 10 points are stolen from our participant, there is cause for concern. <laughs> uh, so since 2014, what has happened is that the national juries are actually revealed before the contest, that was their identity of the juries was kept secret. They're now revealed as are their voting results. Now, one thing that Eurovision tries to do is to create a, a foster and foster a sense of European identity. And the difficulty 
about this is that Europe is constantly expanding. So, well, Europe, in the, in the eyes of Eurovision, sorry, I should say, is constantly expanding. And, and so this is a, an illustration of how the European uh, Eurovision family has grown significantly in the last 60 years. So now we're in a situation that we are, in Australia, part of Europe, and, I mean, that's bloody obvious. We don't need to talk about that at all. Of course we are. Um, but 16 of the competing nations are not members of the EU. So it's not just us. It's... Uh, some Eastern European countries, former Yugoslav republics, and also Israel, who have been part of the EBU for quite some time. Now, in Eurovision, what this expansion has uh, occurred synonymously with is what you could see as a homogenisation of the contest and the increasing influence of international music. So Justin Timberlake performing is, is one example of that. The other... Um, big sort of issue is, as Julia mentioned, languages in the contest. Now, prior to um, 1999, uh, contestants had to sing in um, their own language, and those rules were changed in 1999, so contestants could choose which language they sang in. Uh, and what I did here uh, was spend a good three hours uh, <laughs> compiling data on the, the songs and watch language that were sung in the final. And as you can see, there is a marked trend towards an increasing number of songs that are being sung in English. And in this year, 2017, only seven of the 42 competing countries uh, will not sing their song exclusively in English. Now, along with this idea of creating a sense of unity, um, there's been a wealth of research into how Eurovision is used as an expression of national identity and nation branding. And the Russian grannies are a fantastic example of this. And when Julia said that they sang the Beatles song and that that was probably, you know, you could tell that that was their preference, um, the way in which their performance has been read by a lot of scholars suggests that it was very, very carefully constructed to um, portray Russia as a significant country, a strong state, but the one that is sensitive to its ethnic minorities. And so in most of the performances, you can actually, if you read carefully, you can see how nations want to present themselves in their acts. And it's not only um, the acts themselves, it's the hosting as well that matters. So um, a couple of years ago, I supervised an honours thesis on Eurovision uh, by a, a wonderful woman called Sydney Chen. And she did some research into how the Baltic nations, Latvia and Lithuania, used Eurovision as a branding process and how the contest helped them gain accession into the European Union after they hosted it. Um, and two things that were really interesting is how these countries use the postcard segment before each song um, is played to provide an insight into their own democracies. Estonia, so these are two examples from Estonia, where Estonia, uh, their theme was fairy tales, and they did the fairy tale story of Hansel and Gretel, and instead um, of it being sort of an ominous scenario, the cabin in the woods was actually an internet cafe. Uh, and so you know, they, were, they were actually sort of spruiking uh, internet access within the country to portray it as a modern entity. Before the Russian entry, uh, they had a sort of a vignette or a story where a man went to a restaurant uh, on a date, saw a goldfish in a bowl. Um, the woman that the man was on the date with was, I think, commenting quite negatively or ordering him around to, to do stuff. So he subsequently got the goldfish, 
took him out to the lake and released him into the wild. Now, the storyline's a little bit dodgy, I know, um, but it was widely represented as a symbol of uh, Estonia leaving Russia um, and becoming an independent country. Now, the other thing when we talk about identity is Eurovision over the years is, uh, has become a very established space for LGBTI rights advocacy. And so over the years, um, Eurovision has gradually come out uh, with very prominent victories from Dana International, uh, from the Serbian entry in uh, 2013, Maria Serifovic, who performed the song Prayer, um, and most recently, Conchita versed with Rise Like a Phoenix. And these entries are very, very symbolic events, but there have also been more overt protests within the contest itself. So in 2013, the Finnish entry, uh, Krista Siegfried's, um, used Eurovision to sing a song called Marry Me. So if you read the song, it's, it's a conventional song. It's, it's about marriage. But she used her performance to, right at the very, very end, stage a, a lesbian kiss. And after the contest, she was very, um, very overt in saying that how she did that and why she did that was directly in response as a protest to Finnish lack of marriage equality laws. So the sheer size of Eurovision's viewing audience, which is in excess of 200 million uh, last year, makes it a really, really good sort of vehicle for drawing attention to a particular political cause. Which brings me to Brexit. <laughs> Okay, so... <laughs> Apart from the overt diplomatic spat between Russia and the Ukraine, um, I think that it's going to be very, very interesting to see how the UK's entry is received in the aftermath of the Brexit vote. Um, the title of their song this year is quite unfortunately and ironically, Never Give Up On You. <laughs> Following on from the previous act, you're not alone. <laughs> mm. um, and it's worth saying that Eurovision, uh, that uh, UK is one of the big five countries in Eurovision, so it's one of the five countries that's guaranteed an automatic entry straight through to the final, based on the level of their financial contributions to the EBU. Now, how that changes in light of the Brexit negotiations will be very, very interesting to see. Now, for me as a political scientist, it's actually very difficult to uh, predict the size of the backlash against the United Kingdom um, simply because their results have been pretty bad <laughs> over the last couple of decades. Uh, so, you know, with all, my, with all my scientific knowledge, I can't quite tell whether people are voting against the UK for political reasons or whether their song is just crap again. <laughs> Now, sort of on a positive note, um, while representative democracies have been struggling with participation and engaging individuals in the voting process and in elections, particularly young people, uh, Eurovision has gone from strength to strength in terms of engaging people in this idea of online uh, voting or televoting. It's really difficult to get the exact figures of the number of people who vote in Eurovision, uh, but in 2016, sorry, in 29, over 10 million people voted, and the 2016 figures um, indicate that a lot of the viewers of Eurovision are younger, so in the 15 to 24 bracket, which bodes well for political participation of youth in Eurovision. Um, <laughs> 
And one of the interesting things that uh, countries have to, to deal with is how they're going to select the song that uh, uh, represents them at the contest. And here I get really, really excited because when I study political parties, I study candidate selection. And this is just like candidate selection. Um, in the world of parties, we have a number of different ways in which parties pre-select candidates from very, very exclusive and authoritarian mechanisms, uh, like you know, a single leader, uh, like SBS, which didn't allow the public any say whatsoever in the last, uh, last three times Eurovision has, um, Australia has been in Eurovision, to very, very open and inclusive processes like the Norwegian and the Swedish Melody Festivals. Now, so going forward, um, if SBS continues to send a representative for Australia to Eurovision, we have to think about how we're going to select him or her. So this is this year's uh, representative, Isaiah Fairbrace, who, if some of you have got a keen eye, uh, will notice that he's sitting outside the Dean's office in the quad, <laughs> obviously waiting to be seen by the student services, because he's got to fix up his enrolment. Um, so we have to think about how we're going to be doing this. And one of the really interesting things that's happened over the years in Eurovision is the number of entries who have actually previously won reality TV shows, like The Voice, like The X Factor. Um, so Firebrace was a previous winner of The X Factor, and we actually have two Australians competing in this year's contest. The other is The Voice winner, Anja Nissen, who was representing Norway. And how, and how and why that is, we'll answer in question time. <laughs> oh, how many, how many people have I been telling it's uh... <laughs> Oh, sorry to all of the ABC radio audience. <laughs> Who, who's going to be, yeah, yeah, we're unnecessarily waging war on uh, the wrong Scandinavian country. Um, <laughs> Anyway, but how we decide to go forward in this is going to be very, very interesting because if you have a very exclusive way of um, selecting a candidate, parties research tells us that we can often come up with um, unrepresentative er uh, entries that are not, don't particularly resonate well with the, the viewing public. But if we expand the selection process to include everyone, like the US presidential elections indicated, we come up with Donald Trump. <laughs> Or Bodie McBoatface, uh, <laughs> the best. So to finish up, um, this slide I think is, is interesting because it's quite a contrast from uh, the very, very first slide that I showed you uh, of the EBU and the producers of Eurovision views on the song contest itself. Um, and this is from Jorgen Frank, who was the former interim director of uh, TV for the UBU, so a pretty much a, a head honcho. And he said that the song contest, in fact, has a mission in Europe. I think it's not about the music, or rather, the music is a tool that we use to bring the broadcasters and populations of Europe together. Without that tool, it wouldn't happen. To me, the song contest is a battlefield where you can allow yourself to be a patriot, you can even allow yourself to be a nationalist, which is a word you don't want to attach very much to people these days. You can support your own country, you can say the others stink. It's harmless, but it's very significant, and if we didn't have that battlefield, we might have more actual battles. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. That was great. All right, so now we're going to have the question um, answer section. 
Uh, just a few rules of engagement. Uh, this um, event is being um, recorded to be part of a podcast, so we'd ask you, if you do ask a question, just to wait till the microphone comes your way. And I know sometimes we think we have loud voices and don't need one, but just try and obey the rules. Um, so there'll be uh, Meredith with a microphone. Um, the also the thing is it's a question and answer um, uh, session. So if you wouldn't mind, if you would formulate your thoughts as a question, it would be very helpful for the two speakers. And the last little rule um, is just to remember we want as many people to have a chance to contribute as possible. So keep those questions pithy, short, to the point. All right. Um, if you're going to be long, I'll do something embarrassing, like ask you to sing um, a Eurovision contest song from That's the not going to put a lot of people yeah. off. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're going to love that. All right, we'll think of another punishment. All right, so please, we're open for questions now. And if you would just stand up when you ask a question, please. The year that uh, Conchita won in Austria was also the year that Russia got booed. Mm. So what was it like... Um, in terms of the crowd and, and, and what actually what it feel like to be there. The Danish hosts, can you hear me? If I, the Danish hosts were very quick to put a kibosh on that, sort of saying they're two young girls, look, whatever you might think of Russian politics, they're just up there singing, you know, give them a break. Um, and people don't take well to the booing. I hate booing in football, let alone Eurovision. I mean, I just, there's no place for it. But, um, yeah. The, 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 the Danish hosts had the guts and the confidence to say, no, this is not why we're here. They even got a bit shitty about it, which was great. It kind of gave, made it a bit more human. Um, but um, the Conchita year was just superseded by the incredible feeling that that singer brought to that room. And she was such an outsider to begin with. Um, you know, had a few run-ins with a couple of other guys who don't like gays and don't like anyone who's a bit different and had to, fought, you know, fought for herself. She's so confident, didn't care. And we managed to doorstop her in the foyer in the hotel and do an interview with her, which was great. But the minute she got into the final, all of a sudden, her kind of, the stakes rose really for her. And, you know, all the other commentators of the other countries, they've kind of been doing it a long time and a lot of them came out of their little boxes and stood on this bridge, like a kind of a bridge had been made, a big balcony. They're not all like that, the venues, but this one had one. And stood there and listened to her sing her song at the end when she won. Because it was, it was a significant moment. To me, it was like, there's a guy in a beard, in a dress, singing a great song. And it was fantastic. It was fantastic. But yeah, booing. Boo. Boo to booing. <laughs> Julia, you mentioned that... Um, hi. <laughs> I'll stand up. You, men um, you mentioned that social media has changed the nature of Eurovision in the modern day. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, I mean, it's changing everything, isn't it, Annika? You can't do a step anywhere without, um, you know, whatever on this, you know, someone's yeah. going to tweet this stuff. Well, how many tweets are we up to? Oh, mate. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, social media is like a... It's like a cancer you know it's um you know i do corporate events where i you know 
host evenings and you know in the old days you'd say turn your phones off and put them away and now they actually put someone saying no tweet yes, talk on your yeah. phone do whatever you want yeah. um it's weird uh but i think as you were saying if the new audience is a younger audience they're certainly going to be the ones voting and mm. using their phones mm. and 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 maybe the older generation isn't going to vote as much but it's all the interaction. It's the fact that you can talk to um, your uh, artist. It means you can hook up with people in the area. It means that you can find each other in the city that it's happening and get together, which is lovely. Um, commentary as well, commenting, sharing. The thing that I was quite naive about in the beginning is that I didn't know if rehearsals were filmed. And that gets posted out. I mean, Eurovision posted out. And in my training experience, rehearsals about getting it wrong and right how you need to and stuffing up. And so many times, you know, performers would say, oh, but I didn't know it was going to be filmed. And people tweeting and saying, I just saw your rehearsal. What are you wearing that dress for? She said, I'm not. That's my rehearsal outfit. <laughs> so I feel like there's been this kind, there's a lot of noise around it. You know, the days are gone where you just watch the final and you get the song and you just get the songs for the first time. By the time we get to the final, we've seen how they're going to look, what they're going to wear, how they're going to dress, and they're judged from the beginning in terms of what they did in rehearsals, what they're changing, and how it's going to finally end up. Nowhere else do you judge a rehearsal, ever. Maybe you watch footy being practiced, you know, you watch people. So it's a huge pressure, and you don't, you're not able to go behind that curtain and, and, and have private uh, rehearsal time. But, I mean, some of that noise is conversation. I feel like David and Margaret now. Please, please. Um, <laughs> please. Uh, some of it's conversation. And so that's the beauty, I think, of how social media interacts with Eurovision. Because, I mean, Eurovision is incredible in that it's incredibly long on the night. It's incredibly long on the night of the first semi-final, the second semi-final. But there is a sort of a, uh, an entire contest or a celebration that's built around it. And I, I, you know, I understand the point about the rehearsal particularly in um, doing some research for this talk. I mean, it's hard to believe that I had to do some, but I did. Um, I went online and all of the stuff I, I found was um, concentrated mostly around these Eurovision blogs uh, and fan forums. There's an incredible amount of information. And people watch the rehearsals. They watch the rehearsals being streamed or broadcast, and then they start making judgments on who's going to win, and that actually influences yeah, the does. betting market. So the UK's odds, I think, went up from, what, 1,000 to 1 to 100 to 1, uh, based on the performance in some of the rehearsals. So I think that's interesting. Um, I think what's also interesting about social media, and like a good academic, I actually prepared some extra slides. Oh, Katrina, wow. can you just um, scroll forward, please? Yeah, not that one, not that one, that one, that one. That one. Okay, so this is, I think, a very, very interesting development and it chimes with a lot of re great research that's being done on how storytelling is used uh, in uh, political debate. And I'll give a shout out to Ariadne Vroman, who's sitting in the audience, whose, whose work I use a lot in terms of how social media is shaping political conversations. But she's been talking a lot about storytelling and how storytelling is used by political groups to foster identity. Um, and so, you know, this technique that Eurovision is trying this year with their hashtag Humans of Eurovision contest is actually one that parties, that advocacy organisations are using everywhere to try to foster a shared sense of identity. So we sort of have a, an update of 1956 in this slide here. And if you just go back one, uh, that follows on from, uh, this was the flash mob that was used yeah. by uh, Oslo in, in 2010 to try to sort of create that sort of same 
sense of identity and belonging, uh, bringing together people on diverse continents. So social media does that in a way. Mm. And that was a great moment in Oslo. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Um, the favourite for this year is meant to be Italy. So I'd like to know what both of you uh, is in your short list and whether you think that's uh, geopolitical or based on the song. I'll tell you what it's based on. <laughs> Anything sounds good in Italian. Full stop. End of sentence. <laughs> Opera, rap, anything. It'll, Italian, it just sounds amazing. So, you know, I don't think it's the best Italian song of the last six years at all. Give me L'Essenziale, Marco Mengoni, any old time. But, um, but it would be great, you know, I mean, Italy, they just, mm -hmm. they're amazing. So you You're a nutbag if you try and decide who's going to win, predict it. I'm, I'm wrong every year. Um, I'm amazed with people who know a lot about it. Other commentators have been doing it for 20 years. They get it wrong or they get it wrong. Uh, you just don't know because anything can happen right up to the yeah. last minute. It's, it's got a dancing gorilla in it. Um, <laughs> And that, well, that could be the edge. Uh, I mean, what do we have? We had sort of stuffed wolf last year, yeah. wasn't there? Um, and I mean, if that's your edge, mm, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's a song about. It's great. It? I mean, you know, it's great. But Italy's done, I think, better song. Mm, yeah. I mean, I uh, I declared my favourite, and I declared, I predicted the winner. I shouldn't, as a political scientist, wow. a couple of weeks ago with Bulgaria. Good on you. Uh, beautiful Mess, which I think is a, an excellent and poignant song for these challenging times. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next question, thanks. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Julia and Annika. That was very enlightening. Um, I just had a question in regards to, um, you mentioned that it would be great to hear each group singing in their own language, yet there's been um, a marked trend um, in terms of each group singing exclusively in English. And I was wondering, do you think this is a political statement in itself as such in regards to identity, um, multiculturalism? What do you think that says about? The end of multiculturalism. Yeah, what do you think? Mm. Oh, look, I think partially, but probably there are more commercial considerations than political considerations. Because as Julia said, a lot of people, you know, will just sort of stop after the semi and then go to the Euro club. Uh, and, and dance the rest of the contest. But then there are other artists um, from which Eurovision is a significant springing board. And I think the reality of the international music market is that they've got a better chance singing in English. I mean, uh, Jamala's song had a little bit of uh, language in it, a little bit. But the last one to win, really, I think, was Maria Serafovic yes, with Prayer. Right. Not a, if, if you don't understand anything, but it's fantastic. Because it's this woman singing about this song and it's intense. You go, I don't understand. You won't die if you don't understand every word. Go with it. And then she's got these girls behind her. So there's this kind of lesbian love fest thing happening there. It's pretty great. And you're going, well, what are they saying? What's going on? You don't get one. Because it's, she was so intense. It's, it, why? Why? Who knows? But it just goes to show that you can win. You know, take a chance. But everybody, I think, wants to win. They want to win. That's the only thing they want to win. And I think that's our age. You just can't, you know, can't just do something for the participation of it. It's about winning a lot of the time. Although I have to say, speaking to the contestants backstage, especially if they're older, if they're over 35, <laughs> um, and there are some, 
Um, they say, look, you know, we've been performing a long time. We're here to do a great show. We know the best song doesn't win. You can't control who wins. We just go and do a good show and see what happens. So a lot of them are quite clear on that. Thanks. Um, so counter to what you were just saying, um, if Australia wants to have a future and wants to win in Eurovision, <laughs> um, it's clear with the block voting that we can't rely on Australians through Europe voting in the countries that they are. Um, Denmark seemed to vote um, quite highly for us and I think that might be because of Princess Mary. And I was wondering, <laughs> I, I was wondering whether a long-term strategy for Australia would be to try and get Australians as uh, kind of uh, partners of various European heads of state or future heads of state. <laughs> and what would you think of that? I think you pop that in a memo and you send it to SBS. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what you do. that's right, that's the next reality TV that's, show. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Copyright, copyright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Copyright, yeah. copyright. Yeah. Prince Ludwig um, once I a thought the United Kingdom would vote for us maybe more. Is that nuts? Uh, well, there's a they just make a little block? There's a significant backpacker population, I think, in, in Earl's Court. Um, I, I mean, but see, Graham Norton, I think, has had a bit of a dampening effect on the, uh, on the UK vote. And I, I mean, that's something that I'd be interested in your perspective on, because he has really, really been the most vocal commentator yeah. about the stupidity of Australia being in Eurovision. Mm. And he's entitled to his opinion. <laughs> um, I mean, Graham Norton took over from Terry Wogan in 2009, um, and uh, when Denise decided, well, no, maybe we could do our own version, and Graham wasn't huge at the time. He is now, and I love his show, and you know he's fantastic. But at the time, we were just trying to get our bit of it right. But um, look, you know, it's a weird old call that Australia's in it for some people, and I, I still don't know where I sit on it, to be honest. Um, but I do know that. It's been in increments, bringing Jessica in to sing at uh, half-time in uh, Denmark, then getting a wild card with Guy, and I mean, Guy Sebastian nailed it. You know, he wrote that song in two days, he came fifth, which is unbelievable, because he's so natural and terrific and, you know, wrote a song he liked, so he actually was connected to it. Dami almost got there, but, you know, People were saying to me, oh, we nearly won and we could have won and I just sort of want to go, but it's Eurovision. Like, you probably won't because of the <laughs> votes and the way it's done and how that it probably won't happen. Now, Azerbaijan had only been in the contest four years when they won. So maybe we'll, we'll get our turn. But I do know that for Isaiah, it will be a wonderful opportunity. He's going to get a lot out of it. He genuinely loves the competition. I think that helps. For some singers, they see doing that show as a liability. Um, so if you can make it work for you, it's, it's terrific. And, you know, there's been talk about, you know, trying to sex Isaiah up. It's like, he's perfect how he is. You know, you just, he's an incredible performer. He has this old soul voice coming out of this, you know, young man's body. And if he can kind of keep calm, because it's an extremely stressful event. Extremely stressful. We have a good time watching it. But a lot of them, it's, it's very, very stressful. They sing a lot, they're pushed around from pillar to post, they don't get a lot of sleep, and I don't know how you're supposed to do your best performance when you're in that joke. 
I mean, and Azerbaijan as well. They were in it for years, but Azerbaijan was interesting because it was quite explicit in their foreign policy uh, that they wanted to win Eurovision. <laughs> so that would have to be another strategy that Australia adopts. I know it's, it's, I know it's budget night tonight, and I'm not, ex <laughs> I'm not expecting there to be an extra line in the budget for, for Eurovision, but I think we've still got 20 minutes, don't we, uh, before Scott Morrison... Stands up, so. Uh, thank you for a very enjoyable uh, talk, and you just stole my joke. Uh, thanks about the budget, uh, oh, you know. But I'm sure we can sneak sorry. in next a 30 billion spare, you know, to just cut it from the universities. It's great. Yeah, higher education. Um, with Australia being in, this is the third year we've been in. Uh, as a it's the third year as a contestant, yeah, but Jessica Sang was part of it as an interval. Um, how far do the boundaries of Eurovision go? When are we going to see a Panama entry? A what entry? A Panama or Bolivia. Like, how, sure. how far will it go? Well, is, there, is there a stop to Eurovision? Well, you know, like, uh, like I sort of alluded to before, China were there watching the show. Uh, they had a couple of commentators throwing their own box and had a look. I don't know if they were practicing commentating for their audience. Um, you can see it in America on the internet, via yeah. the internet, can't you? Um, Americans are still quite bamboozled by it. Bless. I say, stay out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the fact that Justin Timberlake was the interval at last yeah. year seemed significant to me because yeah. it was in Sweden, in Stockholm, where you've got some of the most amazing right. Swedish singers and writers and performers. I mean, yeah, ABBA won't do it, fair enough, but... Um, <laughs> It seemed like a, an interesting, and, and if he hadn't sung the latest song from the movie he was trying to promote, I might have enjoyed it more because uh, he sang a song from Trolls, which is not great, and then he sang a hit, which was good. Um, he's, he's a beautiful performer, obviously, but yeah, who knows? I mean, well, after Brexit, everything started is, is changing in terms of Europe. So, what does Europe mean? Where in it? Who else is? I mean. It's, it can't be World Vision, obviously, because that's a charity, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Asia Vision, of yeah. course. Um, they've been yeah. talking about that for a long time. It's still not happening, but Blink, uh, SBS and I think Blink, who make uh, the show for SBS, uh, have the rights and are talking about it. That would be fascinating. Mm. Asia Vision would be fascinating. Or and I. Or what vision? Oceana. Oceana vision. I'd be a big yep. because then we could have Vicar and Linda Bull represent Tonga and they'd nail it, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's what I say. That would be great. Um, has there been any kind of analysis of the betting market, a serious one, like number of transactions and how much money goes through or anything like that, just to see the economic impact on that side? Not as of yet, not that I'm aware of, but certainly uh, if someone wants to tweet at Simon Jackman. Okay, well, Luke's, Luke's very happy to undertake that analysis, so um, he'll go home tonight. Uh, <laughs> no doubt spend the next five or six days straight on it and, and something will be produced imminently. Hello. Um, Hello. Thank you so much for today. It was really enjoyable. Um, I've just got a question about the nation branding side of things. Um, so in the 90s and early 2000s, we saw that massive wave of um, new Eurovision uh, countries trying to promote themselves through hosting the contest. Um, and then after the GFC, we sort of saw a lot of them, like Greece, and I don't know if the UK was doing this or whether their songs were just terrible, but trying to shirk their way out of the contest because they couldn't afford to host it. Mm. Um, with the likes of Ukraine and then potentially into the future, do you see countries 
wanting to host the contest in the future as a means of promoting themselves or does that no longer have a role? Well, I think that um, the EBU is, is very, very aware of the financial disparities between its, its member states and the issue of how much it costs to host the contest. Uh, so I think Kiev's trying to do it for a relatively modest sum of, what, 20, 20 million, 28 million, and there was always a budget, budget blowout. But certainly it's an issue that Eurovision has to, to grapple with because it highlights that some European states are in a much better financial position than others, and it does produce a, a real barrier to, to um, countries hosting the contest. So it became too much for Ireland. But also, if they just held the contest they can afford, it'd be fine. So mm. when Sweden won it, they, we all went, Stockholm, hooray. They went, no, Malmo. We went, oh. <laughs> so when Germany won, we went, Berlin. They went, no, Dusseldorf. Um, disappointing. But, um, but it was cheaper and it was, uh, you know, you could do different things and bigger things, faster things. And in Malmo, they, they had a small stadium and it wasn't great for us to film from the outside. Normally we like to do big, great images and you know, great packages where you see that. And we were always trying to sort of get it out of the way because it wasn't very attractive. But they did a fantastic show. They did a very funny show. Um, so it's possible. So I just don't see why we can't do modest Eurovisions. And uh, very sadly, the way Denmark went utterly over budget. And they're such a sensible people. <laughs> And they went berserk. And instead of having it in Aarhus, which would be like, you know, a Wollongong or a Newcastle, they had to have it in Sydney, in Copenhagen. And they purposely refashioned a space that was impossible. And then took it all away again to keep the space, you know, it was a big shipbuilding, uh, yeah. I mean, nuts. So that's when I think the thing is completely out of hand, where put the thing you can afford on. And, and it'll still be entertaining because you know when you go to the cities and you go to the venues, they're full of people like you, intelligent, lovely, switched on humans who just want to go and have fun and then talk about it and go and see things around the city and do fun things. And my friend Jeff Wallace calls it the happiest night of the year. That's how he finds it to himself. Hello ladies. Um, of course, Dummy was robbed last year. So Best song, best performance in, in, in decades. But uh, yeah, um, the, firstly, did that confuse uh, the people over there? Having Australia in there, being represented by a Korean-looking person, we Not obviously. Not at all. No, no. What confused me was the voting. I was I was confused as much as anyone else because it was a new system of voting. No, I think it's fantastic that Australia has sent people who aren't particularly white Australian-looking. You know, I think it's wonderful, and they're extremely talented. But. Um, I think what was confusing us was, because of course if you win, if your country wins, the commentator has to run down to the stage and be the first person to interview the... So I was in my pants, I had my dress going, no, yes, no, she, yes, she's the... Oh no, put that away, take the earrings off. <laughs> Damn. Uh, yeah, what I wanted to really ask you about was, uh, is there much kind of merchandising around Eurovision? I can imagine there's a lot of promotional stuff that you know, people flog, but you know, stuff that fans maybe can buy afterwards. I mean, I was really hoping there was going to be a souvenir butter churner from a couple of years ago, if you know. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I just wondering if that, and also, do you think this year that uh, Vladimir Putin might be organising an army of hackers to make sure uh, that Russia gets up this year? 
there's lots of merchandise at every single event mm. that you can go and purchase for yourself in the uh, foyer of most of the auditoriums. Mm. Uh, Sam and I would be regulars and get a, perhaps a shirt or a couple of programs or some kind of pin uh, or scarf. Uh, definitely. Uh, look, we just missed Putin in the Moscow uh, 2009 show. He'd been on set two days earlier, uh, walking around, uh, showing himself mm. off. Um, but, um, oh, look, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I mean, the voting's a mystery, really. <laughs> How many people watch it is a mystery. Who votes is a mystery. Why we're here is a mystery. <laughs> so I think sometimes you can, what I love is you can analyse analyze it to death and then just go, have a party and not care anymore. <laughs> Sorry, I just think I've reached that point. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think that the, the Putin thing, I mean, we'll, we'll, never, we'll never know. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of commentary about that, on, particularly on social media, and it's a, it's, it's a threat, but I am confident in the EBU's robust processes, and, you know, <laughs> my, my level of trust in, in Jan Olison is greater than any political leader. Uh, <laughs> so that's something to watch. What's also interesting to, to watch is how the Ukraine and how Kiev will portray itself during the contest, every opportunity they have um, in their postcards, in their integral performances, that'll be interesting. Um, and merchandising, I reckon there are a lot of people in this room who have got a stack load of merchandise uh, at home that don't want to share it. <laughs> Hi. Thanks very much for tonight. Um, you touched on in your talk that um, choosing a song, it's sort of a two-pronged process that you need to pick something that you think is reflective of the sending country, but that's also going to appeal to other countries for votes. Is there a particular song that you think did that particularly well? Um, and as a side point, um, if Australia does get up, can we count on you being the Petromira of Australia? <laughs> A few people said to me who'd seen Eurobeat and Bronya said, she's a bit Bronya, that Petra. Um, but, um, oh, I'd love to... If, if, if we were to win, if the situation meant if they win, what would have happened is that a, another country in Europe would have hosted it on our behalf. So possibly Germany, possibly some of the Scandinavian countries. We seem to have a nice uh, relationship with Sweden and with Denmark. Um, because the crew, so much of the crew actually are European and actually are the same every year. Which is why the show is put on very swiftly, very quickly, very well, because they all know each other and they know how it works and it's great. So, yeah, it wouldn't come here, we'd have to do it there. I'd love a crack, but I don't know if that's possible. Um, what was it? The music. Yes, thank you for bringing up the music of it. <laughs> because... I've learned that everybody's taste is extremely different. I once spoke to Lim Newton-John and said, how was your experience of Eurovision? She said, oh, I loved it, but I didn't like my song. Sandy Shaw didn't like her song. You know, a lot of the time you're told what to sing. So someone like Guy gets a song that he wrote himself. That must be the best thing. You're so proud of having done that yourself. You know, we live in a world of pop now, which is all markets. Um, but look, I, you know, Rides Like a Phoenix, Conchita's song did kind of galvanise everybody. It had that kind of Bond theme, so we, we, we recognised it, so that always helps. 
but I will have one of it again. I'm quite fond of L'Essenziale by Marco Mangoni. Um, because, because, every rehearsal he was Mr. Too Cool for school, right? He just came out in the set and he'd stand there and just go, oh, you know, I don't really care. And, and then finally everyone was saying, well, what do you need? What do you want? What do you want from us? And he just wanted to stand there by himself in a suit and just sing. And he hasn't got the most incredible voice in the world that's going to belt necessarily. But he just did a really good performance with a really good tune about love is the essential thing. And it's a great song. Mm. So that's, you know, but again, you talk to someone else, like, I love that song. I think that song's ridiculous. And you think, mm. oh. That's why we're all so different in, in the music that we love. But yeah, music, important. Uh, and the great thing now is that you've got 42 of them to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my iPad is, uh, my iPod is completely clogged up with, with Euro songs. And so what I tend to listen to, or what I, what I think are the, the better songs, are the ones that I don't actually realise are Eurovision. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> there are a few that come round. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers uh, an Estonian band called Rufus. And their song '80s coming back. No, about two, uh, two, two nods in the audience. Yeah, the three people know that one. Um, so that's probably one of my all-time favourites. Um, but Conchita, yeah, Rise Like a Phoenix. There's, there was something about that song that drew together so many different communities, satisfied so many different tastes. But you know, as Julie mentioned, and I think it's something that we can sort of sit on the stage and say we've been to Eurovision, we've experienced it. Um, there's something about being there. There's something about the energy in the room when you're with a group of fans screaming at the top of your lungs for your country, but you can still recognise when an absolutely brilliant song comes along. And it wasn't until the third year Eurovision that I actually got a chance to sit in the dress rehearsal one night with audience. Like normally that would be our time to go back. We'd already watched a dress rehearsal without audience. We'd go back to the hotel room, do notes for the next day. But this night I stayed and just wandered in and it was packed. So it's great. The audience gets to watch it. There's no winner. It's just a dress rehearsal, but it's a cheaper way of seeing the show. And I sat next to a family, uh, two sisters in their 40s with their kids. I told them why I was there. They came back with drinks and the beer. We were all sitting together. The girls had the you know, program and they were checking off songs. And they, it was a totally family event. And then it's a gay event. And then it's a, a, a French event, and it's an Italian event, it's an everything event. And nothing ever bad happens at Eurovision, really, amongst the people. <laughs> it's always a beautiful time. It really is. Um, so that was beautiful to sit with in, in the audience and, and watch that incredible show in Dusseldorf. It was amazing. It's huge. Anthony Green was there, I do believe. Right? <laughs> you yes. He was there, yes. Uh, Julia, I noticed you shaking your head when it was mentioned that the big four, the old empires, get their free yes. entry into, into the final. Yes. What do you think about that situation that is apparent? Well, politically speaking, mm. the competition is uneven to begin with. Yes, they have the most money. They put the most money into the EBU. But often their songs aren't great. They're really not. <laughs> and then you've got these other countries with fantastic songs who have to qualify. So again, the door's open for some and the door's shut for others. I mean, I would love to get rid of that rule, but um, that's not going to happen, I don't think. Maybe that all language round might. But yeah, I just think that's nuts, because there are some songs you just think, that's, that's not good enough. 
Full stop, end of sentence. Oh. <laughs> Hashtag outraged. <laughs> No, I, no, no I, I, I don't think I can now. But it is uneven. <laughs> but it, it does make it slightly uneven, doesn't it, from the oh, start? Oh, it's, extre it's extremely uneven. Particularly, mm. I mean, since, you know, you, you're whittling down to, what, 20-something songs in the, in the mm. grand final. And so that's a really, really significant chunk mm. um, of the entries. And, I mean, I think that because they're guaranteed automatic entry, they do come up with some pretty lazy stuff. You know, if you're guaranteed a certain mark in an essay, you're certainly not going to, you know, start at two weeks ahead of time. Mm. So, <laughs> sorry, I've just, yeah, there are too many, too many late things coming in. Yeah, yeah it's a, no, it's true. Oh, just a question for Julia. Um, why did you decide to stop hosting this year? Because <laughs> I'm going to miss you. I really am. <laughs> If you give me your address, I'll pop round and just do a live call for you. <laughs> um, look, you know, what I found incredible in the last few months is that no one can believe you want to leave a job when you're at the top of your game. Now, I just think that is the best time to go. I mean, why do you want to drag it out? And it's repetitive. I love going to Europe, don't get me wrong, but I've been feeling the last few years what am I bringing new? What new things am I bringing? And Sam was feeling it too, you know, and every year we don't know if we were coming back. It's a year-by-year -year job. Now there's a momentum because we're in it, but um, we didn't know. So I think Sam and I had always wanted to leave together and um, it felt like the right time to go and yeah, I, I really think if you can't find something new in the job that you're doing and you're not sort of bringing it in a way that's sort of, you know, ticking off all the boxes, then, ah, oh, maybe... And I started when I was 42, 43, where I was still like, yeah, do whatever, put on the wacky clothes, whatever, and now I go, oh, maybe not so much. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you what, if Italy or Iceland win this year, I'll be there next year as a punter, don't you worry. <laughs> I, will be go, I will go for sure and watch that show and sit back and enjoy it and hear the songs for the first time, only once, hear them once, and make a decision as opposed to being on the internet for five months beforehand. I mean, it's nuts. I don't have to study them and that's actually quite a lovely thing. But thank you. Just get me that address. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're going to have to draw it to a close. Though I did notice that you two are dressed the same, which I presume means you're ready, and that's your costume for the song you're going to finish with. Is that right? Yeah, I've got the wind machine. Just have you all ready to go? Yeah, we'll sing something. No, a couple no. of champagnes later. Oh, yeah. right. Thank you so much. I loved your description of being um, at, at Eurovision and you described it as a beautiful time. And I, th I think that was so much better than whatever his name is describing the battle. Mm. Um, it was you know, much more evocative. The happiest night of the year, my friend yeah. Jeff Wallace, it's his Yeah, night, happiest yeah. night of the year. And I guess I'd like to say thank you to the two of you on behalf of all of us for making our own happiest night of the year. You've been very generous with your time and very um, the, the stories you told about what it was like and your analysis, Anushka, was 
fantastic. A real wonderful sort of sense of, um, of this event. So thank you very much to both of you. just did want to note that this is a Sydney um, Ideas event and you would have noticed um, the person who was very charmingly uh, taking the microphone around, that's Meredith Hall who organises these events. So thank you so much to Meredith um, and also to SSPS for the background work to make this such a wonderful evening. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.